it's a dangerous time for the police officer because the most common way that police officers are assaulted or killed is during traffic stops. I've got all my buddies out looking for Dewan, and I just tell them, hey, go to another part of the city until I can get him locked up. So this guy is so bad that not only is he shooting and killing people, but he's able to convince a relative to shoot and kill two people. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. I don't know about you, but I'm a voracious reader. I love reading books, but I don't always have the time to devote to sitting down and reading them. If you're like me and you've got a list of books you just haven't gotten to, you need to give Audible a try. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content. No matter what titles you choose, you'll love listening to Audible. One author I recommend, Jim, is Brad Thor. All his books are on Audible. He's a fantastic writer who writes with total authority on spy thrillers, which is one of my favorite genres. Right now, our listeners can start a 30-day trial and get their first Audible book free. Learn more at audible.com slash best case. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash best case. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and currently writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is my lovely co-host, from afar, Francie Hakes. How you doing, Francie? Hi, Jim. Good. It's nice to be with you from Philadelphia. I'm kind of on assignment uh, for a TV show that I hope we can talk to our listeners about soon. But in the meantime, it's great to join you. Yeah, we will be able to talk to them soon about a show. It's another XG production, and we're really excited about it because it's an amazing show and it's accomplishing amazing things. But for now... We have the pleasure of welcoming our great friend and wonderful guest, Christine Menina, an officer from Indianapolis, Indiana. How you doing, Christine? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your guys' show. Well, we're really happy to have you. Um, and today, we want to talk to you about a case that bothers you, a case that you would put in the worst case of your career, something that has stuck with you for years and that you really want to talk about. Um, we find this to be a cathartic event for the officers and prosecutors that we talk to because 
we understand. And what we want to do is let the public understand what it's really like to be behind the police lines, how it really affects the lives of the people whose profession it is to protect the public. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there, a lot of these cases are difficult, but I, I, I did have one um, that has stuck with me and, and will always stick with me. So, um, you yeah. know, I investigated homicides for nine years and, you know, one in particular has really just kind of, it still keeps me up at night. All right. So is that the kind of case this is? It's, it's a homicide? It is a homicide case. Yes. Um, okay. And how did this case come to you? Well, I was up for the next homicide, so I was in the office, and it came over the radio that two people um, had been shot, and this was about one in the morning, and one was critical, so and one was talking. So they went ahead and started homicide um, to the scene, and as I was in route, I heard over the radio that, that the one that was critical was actually dead and was not going to be mm. transported to the hospital. So uh -huh. I knew, you know, getting there that I would have two people shot, one deceased and, and one still alive. So that's how it came about for me that evening. Okay. And what, what were you doing? Were you at your job just working paperwork or what were you doing at the time? Yeah, I was actually up in the office and it's interesting because we have uh, what's called, you know, we call it the bubble. So if you're up for the next homicide, you're on the bubble so it's just, I was at the office just kind of being prepared. I could tell kind of by the radio traffic that night that it was busy radio traffic all over the city. And I just kind of had that gut feeling that, that I would get one. And so I wasn't really doing a whole lot. I think I was just kind of preparing for what I thought would be a long night eventually. And mm -hmm. probably about four hours into the shift is when uh, the run came out of two people shot. And how long had you been a police officer and how long had You've been working homicides at this time. I had been in homicide about, let's see, probably about five years when I received this case and been on the department about nine years. So, wow! And Christine, you say that you were on the bubble, which I just love. This is the kind of behind police lines I think that our listeners will really like knowing about how you in Indianapolis call uh, these sorts of positions. You're on the bubble. You had an instinct that something was going to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about a typical evening in Indianapolis? I mean, it's a great city. Jim and I were there recently for CrimeCon, which we just uh, both loved. Jim was the host for the whole event. And it seemed like a, a wonderful, safe city. So is homicide happening there every night, as it is in many major cities around the country? Unfortunately, it is uh, where CrimeCon was located, which was downtown Indianapolis. It's probably the safest part of the city for us. It's when we get to the outskirts, about four or five different areas in the outskirts of Indianapolis where it gets, you know, pretty busy and where our homicides occur. And so you got this case, or at least you received word that you have one victim who's died and then the other who's also been shot. What did you do next? So I jumped in uh, my car. Well, I went to the bathroom because, you know, it's going to be a long night. So I, I did that real quick. And then I, and I jumped in my car and I went to the scene. And, you know, as I'm driving there, I'm kind of hearing the radio traffic a little bit. They had 
put a description out of a possible suspect. So that always made me feel pretty good that, you know, maybe I had a suspect right off the bat. So I was happy about that as I was driving there. So you have a potential suspect. So you're driving to the scene. Are you, Lights and sirens or, or what? How do you get there? Lights and sirens to the scene. The radio traffic was pretty busy and it had been given a description of a possible black male left in a dark colored vehicle. Okay. And so you're going to be looking out for this dark vehicle and you're going to see, you know, perhaps if you spot that vehicle driving away from the scene while you're going towards the scene, because the worst thing would be to let the suspect get away while you're getting to the, to the scene of the crime, right? Absolutely. And the problem with this scene is it's pretty far from downtown. So I've got a good, you know, five or six minute drive pretty quickly, um, you know, to get there. It's going to take me five or six minutes to get there. So I'm hoping that the district officers are, you know, listening to the radio traffic and, and being on high alert for that vehicle. So what happens when you first arrive on the scene? When I first arrive on the scene, I kind of do the same thing, and I try to find the reporting officer, which is usually the first officer on the scene. The patrol officer, uniformed officer, gets there first, and I try to find him. It's in a residential neighborhood, and the the lighting is very, very dark, and it's you know pretty dark. And I and I and I grab the reporting officer and I and I ask him you know what he has and he tells me that there's a gentleman that's deceased sitting inside of a vehicle and one another victim that's actually in the ambulance right now all right and the reason why you're going to the reporting officer is because you want it direct from that person you want you don't want anybody in between you don't want to play with this game you know telephone game where somebody basically repeats what somebody else told them, what they heard from a third person, because every time somebody retells a story, they kind of mix it and blend it and change it in some way, right? Absolutely. It's imperative that I go to the officer, the very first officer on the scene, and get what he saw right when he got there. So that's the practice that we're taught here, and and, and that's what I did. And, you know, like I said, he gave me some good information, and, and once he told me, that there was a live victim in the ambulance, I, I quickly ran over there to see if I could get some information from him. Right. And what did you get when you went to the ambulance? I spoke with the victim. They were getting ready to transport, and I said, can you give me a couple seconds? And, and they said yes, and he told me that Dewan had shot him, that they were sitting in the vehicle and Dewan shot him, and he was able to give me an approximate age of 19 to 20, and then they swooped him off and sent him off to the hospital. Is that all? They didn't have a last name or a better description? No last name, just a black male in dark clothing, um, possibly leaving the scene in a darker vehicle. You know, so I kind of relay that information to the officers at the scene, and then I also put that traffic out over the radio to see if, you know, the officers that run that area are familiar with a Dewan that drives a darker vehicle. And we might as well broach this subject because this is something that uh, a lot of my African-American friends have encountered in their lives. And that is that basically driving while black, that a situation like this 
when a call goes out, a very indistinct um, description of a black male driving a dark car, that in many cases, police will pull over any young black male driving a dark car in those circumstances. And uh, it's obviously incredibly disconcerting to people who are legitimate law-abiding citizens to get pulled over like that. It's all it's also scary because police officers are armed and it's a dangerous time for the police officer because the most common way that police officers are assaulted or killed is during traffic stops. So it's such a tension-filled situation. How do you deal with that when you're a cop? Well, you know, it is such a, a tension-filled situation and I think personally that I've just been, you know, raised well and taught well that you treat people with respect. And I understand that when people are pulled over by the police, it's it's nerve-wracking. I mean, it, it just is. And I think it's all in the way that you present yourself and the more information you can give them a while, wh- why you are doing what you are doing. And just try to teach, you know, treat people with respect has been, you know, valuable to my career. And, you know, try to put people at ease. I'm trying to do my job. But I think the more information you can give them, the better. Well, that's that's a great that's a great point, Christine. And one of the things we should say is that recently uh, you have had an officer in Indianapolis killed responding to a traffic stop. And I want to extend our condolences to you and the entire law enforcement community there. And it just really reinforces what Jim said. And this wasn't even a traffic stop. He was responding to an accident and trying to help the occupants of the vehicle involved in the accident. And he was shot and killed allegedly by an occupant of the vehicle. So just shocking and dangerous in a way that I hope our listeners really understand so that they can uh, really put themselves in the shoes of these officers when they are every day putting their lives on the line, doing their most basic job function. Yeah, I would agree. And I think if I could, you know, say anything to the public or people that are listening is you have to understand we're nervous as well, because we don't know, you know, who we're pulling over or if they were involved, you know, in something as well. So I think both the people that are getting pulled over and the police, especially in this day and age, are on edge and and everybody's nervous. And and I think both, you know, parties want to go home and, and not have a major incident happen based on a traffic stop. So what would your advice be to people who get pulled over, whether they're African-American or not? What is the best way to proceed in that kind of circumstance so that, as you said, both parties get to go home? Well, it's interesting. I just went to a school uh, probably a few uh, about three months ago, and, and all of these kids came from low, lower socioeconomic um neighborhoods but they were all going to college and we went in and we literally did a mock traffic stop on how to act and behave if you're pulled over by the police because these kids are going to be going to different colleges and different cities and they're going to be all around the country and the number one thing is you know keep your hands on the steering wheel keep your hands where the officers can see them Um, if the officer asks to see your driver's license just move slowly you know, if you need to get into your glove box, explain to that. No no quick motions. You know, be respectful, and hopefully the officer will be respectful back. And just kind of very deliberate and slow in your movements when you're dealing with the officer. Right. And 
And if the officer is not respectful, the time to address it is not during that tension-filled, dangerous experience. It is afterwards. It is document what happened, write it down right, right after, take out your camera, whatever it is. Don't take out your camera quickly because they might think you're reaching for a gun, whatever. But document it and make a complaint. Don't start a fight with a police officer who is on edge, right? Because car stops are the most dangerous thing that cops do, period. Absolutely. And I, I, and I couldn't agree more. I think it's a time to, to bite your tongue as many times as, as personally I've been yelled at for being in uniform or, or pulling, you know, people over and just having to kind of bite my tongue. You know, there's a time and place and in the middle of the traffic stop is not, you know, let's get... Get what we're doing done, and then, like you said, document it and, and then go to the correct authorities if you were mistreated, and, and hopefully you're not. Great. All right, well, let's get back to the case. So now... The, the surviving victim is being transported. You're at the scene. What's the next big thing that happens in this case? Well, I learned that there, because the victim was in, at a, in a driveway. So I learned that inside of the house that there's a witness, a possible witness to the shooting and the female that called 911. So I grab her up after I get done kind of processing the scene and I take her down to the homicide office to get a statement from her. And how did the case proceed after that? Well, getting a statement from her was not easy, and I started to learn a little bit of background that her boyfriend, uh, that she told me at first wasn't inside of the house, had been shot a couple weeks before the lake by a gentleman by the name of Dewan. And I was like, whoa, okay. And she said that she had been calling the police all day long because Dewan had been driving up and down the street trying to finish off what he didn't complete when she when he tried to kill her boyfriend a couple weeks ago. So she was upset, saying that the police had not done their job and that if we had locked up Dewan a couple weeks ago, he hadn't come, he wouldn't have been able to come back and end up shooting two more people. So she was upset and and you know about the justice system and I absolutely felt her. Um, you know, her frustration. So you took statements, you did the investigation. I did. Did you ever identify who Juwan was? I Not at that statement. Finally, later on, I learned that the victim from a couple weeks earlier that been, had been shot in the leg, Michael Moss, was actually in the house at that time as well. And he had run out after the shooting. So after, you know, begging April to tell me where Michael is, I went and took a statement from him and kind of learned the back history a little bit. And he gave me Dewan's name and said that he had shot him a couple weeks ago and that he was probably back to kind of finish it off. Okay. So were these two victims that were in the car just victims of opportunity, collateral damage? It sounds like it. I think as the investigation kind of went, I think that Dewan thought, that Michael was sitting in the vehicle when actually it was a different gentleman sitting in the vehicle. Uh, all right. And so at some point now that you have him, you have his identity anyway, 
I imagine you are out trying to find where he is right now. I am, and he is very ruthless from what the criminal history that I got from him, and even the officers in the neighborhood were familiar, and he's driving around, and he'd been terrorizing the neighborhood, you know, for two weeks trying to get uh, Michael, you know, after not being able to kill him the first time. So I am telling Michael in April, you know what, go to another part of the city until I can get him arrested. You know, it's hot right now in the neighborhood. I've got all my buddies out looking for Dewan, and I just tell them, hey, go to another part of the city until I can get him locked up. Well, and so far, Christine, this is a really interesting murder case, but I I don't think we've quite gotten to the point of why it's your worst case. And sometimes I have a bad habit of jumping the gun. So I have to admit, I'm jumping the gun. Why is this your worst? It sounds like you, you have your offender. I assume, you know, you're going to get your man and... It'll be over. So what happened? Well, so I end up arresting them. I end up arresting Dewan, and I tell April and, and Michael, hey, I've got him locked up, you know, for the murder. He's obviously locked up for shooting Michael. And I tell them, you know what? I still don't like the my feeling that I have about Dewan. Yes, he's in, he's in jail, but can you just go somewhere for a while? And I've, I finally convinced them to go and... Um, I was home one night and I got a page that there had been a double shooting and the address popped up and it was April and Michael's house. Um, I don't like where this is going. Yeah. And so I jumped up out of bed and I went over to the house and uh, someone had barged in and shot both April and Michael to pieces, literally with high powered assault rifles. Uh, April was in pieces and, and Michael landed in the front yard and they had had their suitcase packed because they had finally listened to me, but they were going to go the next morning to an aunt uh-huh. that lived on the other side of the city. So Juwan had been locked up. Did somebody else do this for him? Yes. So through an extensive, extensive amount of trying to figure out their jail terminology and code, Dewan was able to get his cousin uh, to go over and kill both Michael and April. Wow, so this guy is so bad that not only is he shooting and killing people, but he's able to convince a relative to shoot and kill two people. Do you have the, uh, Jim's not going to like this question, do you have the death penalty in Indiana? <laughs> we do, but of course they didn't They didn't do it. We're, we're lucky to get that with uh, shooting a police officer and killing a police officer, so... I knew that that wasn't going to be an option in this case. But Juwan is in jail. He somehow communicates to his cousin to go kill these victims. Uh, Did his cousin also get arrested? So finally, yes, we were able to uh, figure out. And, you know, and they talked all through code. So it took months and months to be able to decipher everything on through jail phone calls on who did it and we ended up arresting three people that had gone in and and done the murder uh we did search warrants and and we think we got the murder weapons but we were not able to confirm that and they were all arrested and uh convicted as well so so tell me please that everybody who killed someone or tried to kill someone was convicted of a serious crime and is never getting out Absolutely never getting out. Yes. Well, that's at least something. I mean, I just, I, what I don't understand is motive. What, 
what was happening here? What was the problem, if there was one, between Duan and Michael? I, I just don't understand. Well, before the first shooting, Dewan had moved into the neighborhood, and Michael and his family had lived there their whole life. And Dewan had started coming in and selling drugs. And Michael's mother had OD'd on some drugs that Dewan had been selling. So they had a confrontation, and Michael asked Dewan, said, Hey, man, I get that you're selling the drugs. Can you just do it on the next street over? You know, my mom's OD'd, and... You know, and they ended up getting into a verbal argument with no guns, but it was a fist fight. And Michael pretty much beat him up. And then Dewan came back the first time and shot him in the leg and then attempted to come back and, and shoot him, but shot the wrong shot and killed the wrong person. And how old was Dewan at this time? Dewan's like 21. He was a baby. Yeah. Um, it's just it boggles my mind, you know. The biggest issue here is how, I'm sorry, how did he get guns? How did they get all these weapons? How do they get, you know, millions and millions of these guns on the street in the hands of criminals? It's just, it's outrageous. And it's just, it turns arguments into deaths. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know if you spent any time in the UK. Uh, I spent a couple months there, um, you know, for work. And while you're there, you, you listen to the radio and you hear about the cases, you read the news, and there was a whole bunch of issues of stabbings in, in high schools and, and kids bringing knives to school and things like that. That was, that was pretty much their biggest crime wave while I was there. And I think it continues, it persists today because they can get access to knives. They can't get access to guns. And so they don't have anywhere near the shootings or the deaths in, that, in, in all of the UK because of the fact that the guns are just not present. I just don't understand why we have to have such a violent thing that we consider to be okay for anybody to have. And then you find out that that person shouldn't have it after he kills somebody. Well, and Christine, before you weigh in on that, this is apparently another issue that uh, Mr. Clementi and I disagree on, and perhaps we should be doing another debate on this issue, issue like we did on the death penalty. But I, I, w I will say this. As a former federal prosecutor, one of the kinds of cases that I prosecuted were convicted felons in possessions of firearms in Atlanta. And that program was credited with putting such fear in the minds of drug dealers in Atlanta that they stopped carrying guns because the penalty for carrying one tacked on five years of what would otherwise have been a two or three year sentence. And so they stopped carrying them. But I, just to address Jim's point very briefly, of course, it's not everybody that can have guns. And I don't think Jim really meant to say that, but Felons are prohibited from carrying guns in our society. Those who are convicted of domestic violence are prohibited from carrying guns in our society. And but I they think they can have them. They, what well, I'm saying is they can get them. You're absolutely right, Jim. You can get guns in this country. And we can talk for days, I think, about I the think difference between us and the UK. But you're not supposed to have them. And for now, 
you're not getting rid of them. So we have to just keep them out of the hands of bad guys in any way that we can. Well, it'd be nice if we started by um, maybe getting rid of the gun show loophole. That would that would help a little bit because another, anybody can anybody time, any person any person can buy. Well, I'm sorry, maybe little tiny children, but they probably can too. But oh, any yeah. adult can buy a gun at a gun show without any background check at all, and yeah. that is asinine. Yes, but let me tell you something, Dewan did not get his guns from a gun show. Where did he get them? Well, <laughs> he, not from a gun show. He might have gotten them from somebody who goes, who went to a gun show, got a whole bunch of weapons, and then started selling them on the street. And that, that is illegal, happens. too. It's called a straw purchase. That's also a federal felony. Yeah, so anyway, Christine. From doing it. Christine, back to your story. Jim and I are obviously going to have to debate this later. Well, I don't know. I think we should debate it right now, Christine. No, no I'm not going to do that to poor Christine because so far you haven't shouted at her the way you routinely shout at me when we debate. So I have Christine, no idea what you're talking about. Obviously, your ears are way too sensitive. <laughs> Clearly. So, Christine, back to your story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what kind of sentences these guys all got? I mean, did Dewan actually get prosecuted? I'm just curious for ordering the killings in addition to the shootings that he did himself? He did. He will be gone forever. He got something like 130 or 40 years. And most of the in the other gentlemen that were involved in my witnesses' murders got like 70, 80 years. That's great. And how is your parole board and your governor about pardons and things like that? Are you pretty confident they're never getting out? I'm pretty confident they're never getting out. Well, that's great. Yeah. So yeah. tell us a little bit about how this affects you and how you deal with it. Well, I tell you, I really liked Michael in April. You know, I, I felt like I felt personally responsible that justice served them wrong at the very beginning. Like we didn't catch Dewan when he shot Michael in the leg. And I, and I took that, you know, very responsible, you know, some responsibility for that as a part of this department. And then trying to have to, tell them that, you know, I will protect you. I will go above and beyond of trying to get you guys, you know, safe. And, and though we don't have a great, you know, uh, system where we protect people as far as putting them in other states, usually that's for the trial. Um, if we, you know, can find the money to be able to do that. But I just felt very, very sad that I, uh, failed them. So I think that, you know, time helps, and getting the convictions helped, but I I really liked Michael in April, and I felt very very sad that it ended. Well, the that's way a testament them. to who you are as a person, but I don't think you necessarily failed them as much as the system kind of failed them. Because if you did have the resources at your disposal to put them up somewhere out of state or at least out of town, you would have done that, right? Well, I absolutely would have, and I think that we just don't have the resources and witnesses here don't get murdered. It just doesn't happen, and, you know, it was a shock to me in the department and the prosecutor's office as well that something like this happened, and, of course, you know, lawsuits by the family followed, and and so, you know, it it just ended up being a complete mess. Well, Christine, it's not like— you locked up Dewan and then testified for him at his bond hearing and the prosecutor agreed to let him out on bond and he killed them. I mean, 
He ordered their killing. There's almost literally no way that you could have, A, foreseen that, or B, prevented it. I mean, I, I, I understand why you feel responsible. I felt responsible every single time I lost a case. Fortunately, I didn't lose very many, but I admit I lost some, and they they stay with me. Those acquittals, the guys that got away, especially there was one particular case. It was a very serious child sexual abuse case. And, you know, you don't forget that. You, you have to really shove it out of your mind sometimes when you're laying in bed in the dark at night and you're just trying to go to sleep and it just bubbles up. And I think that's the kind of stress in the profession that we're trying to make sure our listeners you know, understand that cops go through. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if there is one reoccurring nightmare that's happened, it's this, it's this case. It's this case that keeps coming up and I still see April and I still see Michael and, and it is, it's, it's extremely stressful as, as everyone knows here, you know, profession that I feel like overall, you know, you just do the best that you can, but we're human and we, you know, we go into this profession thinking I'm going to save the world. And it's a, it's a, you know, big reality when you really, at the end of the day, I feel like I've done so little trying to do so much. Mm. Well, I think what you're doing today, talking about April and Michael and how great they were and how you bonded with them, it, you know, keeps their memory alive. And I think that's good. And obviously our heart goes out to their families, and um, we we wish that that never happened. But also, I'm sure that it created a situation in which people in your city, in the administration, and in the department woke up and said, "We got to do something about this. We can't let these victims get killed. Otherwise, well, nobody's safe here." Right. So at least there is a good teaching point here and that you have been able to um, help bring their memory back uh, and, and share it with our listeners. Yes, absolutely. There's, there's some peace that was found there for sure. Well, Christine, Francie and I are both very glad that you came and talked to us about your worst case. I think it is a cautionary tale. It is something that other law enforcement agencies should hear about, um, as well as people in the general public. So they know why when police agencies say that they're underfunded, they need money in order to have the services that will help protect victims. And hopefully this will sort of encourage people out there to support law enforcement agencies so that they can better protect people in the public. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being here on Best Case, Worst Case. And for now, we're signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can subscribe to Best Case, Worst Case on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite listening app.